out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 3. As we finished up two weeks ago, that second chapter, and we're now ready to dive into chapter 3. And we will spend two weeks in these first eight verses, which are challenging really to understand, I think, in a number of ways. Maybe not so much the first few verses, but then as Paul goes on with his series of questions, it's kind of challenging to understand why he's choosing these questions to ask and then answer. And this is a famously difficult passage. As um, I consulted in commentaries this week, all of them make reference to it uh, being one of the more difficult uh, paragraphs in the book of Romans for a number of reasons. And we'll explore some of those in these first two weeks. But I think God designs his word in some places to be very simple. And then in other places to be very challenging. Makes you think. You have to ponder on what's being said and meditate on it. Which of course is God's design in and of itself. To get people thinking about his word and studying it. And even the apostle Peter in his second letter said that uh, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, but then affirms that they are Scripture. And then we need to take our time so that we understand them. I know I've taught in this section of Scripture, Romans 1 through 3, a number of times, referenced it, taught in it, preached from it. But I always confess that verses 1 through 8 were a little tricky for me, and so I never did much with them. Kind of would gloss them over and get to the part where I really knew what he was talking about. And we don't want to do that. We want to take some time. That's why preaching the way we do here, where you just go from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph throughout a book, is helpful because it forces you then to uh, look into these passages that you might tend to skip over. But with the Lord's help, we will be able to understand uh, in the main what Paul is teaching here and see how it applies to us. Let's begin reading then in verse 1. We'll just read the first eight verses. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And then let's just end with verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Let's pause and ask God's blessing on this this text. Father, we come now to the part of our worship of you that you have commanded where your word is read. 
taught, exhorted. And I pray that you would help me to do that now as this responsibility lands on me. And I depend upon the Holy Spirit, His gifting and power and illumination and guidance to be able to do that, as do everybody listening, relies on the Holy Spirit to give them the strengthening in the inner man required to comprehend your truths and to be able to apply them in their lives. So I pray for us as a people right now. Give us help with your word. Give us guidance. Give us delight in it. Help us to treasure it and then be willing to put it into practice in our lives, whatever we see, and believe whatever we see. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Very quickly, let me remind you of what's going on in these first three chapters. As we just read in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul is bringing everyone, both Jews and Greeks, under sin. As a matter of fact, he says, charging. We've charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That w- that's his goal in this whole passage, to bring every human being under sin, its penalty and power and presence in their life, and therefore the resulting condemnation from God in the judgment and the wrath of God that is coming. Every human being, Jew and Gentile, that's what he's doing here. He's charging that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. If you remember, he began that back in chapter 8, verse Uh, or chapter 1, verse 18, and he's been running the whole way through. In chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of the chapter, Paul was addressing the Gentiles generally, the nations, humanity generally throughout history, and how they knew about God and creation but didn't want him and therefore became idolatrous, rejected God, suppressed the truth about him in their own unrighteousness, created gods of their own making and their own liking, worshiped them, and God gave them over to sin, and we see it expressed in all the forms of immorality that we see in our own lives at times, sadly, and in culture at large. And then in chapter 2, he turns its attention on the Jewish people who would have been listening to what he said in chapter 1 and applauding it, believing that sin was always out there, but that they were exempt from God's judgment. Remember what they were trusting in? They were trusting in the fact that they were descended from Abraham. They were Jews. And they had the sign of of the covenant, that is, circumcision, to prove it. They possessed the law, and furthermore, they believed it and knew what was right and what was wrong. They were trusting in their ability to keep the law enough to be justified by God. And so Paul brought all of that out in chapter 2, charged them with sin as well as practicing the very same kinds of sins and displayed that if you want righteousness by the law, you got to keep the whole entire law perfectly if that's your pursuit of righteousness. And of course, his desires get to the point where he puts forth Jesus and Jesus alone as our only source and hope of righteousness and salvation. And he said this in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 2. This is where we landed last time. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And those two verses especially where Paul landed 
would have invoked a lot of questions in the minds of the Jews. Questions about God's covenant with them in the laws, about God's um, care of them, about God fulfilling his promises to them, about what was the point of their entire existence and God beginning in Genesis 12 and calling out Abraham and then going all the way through and tracing through those people of the Jews. What was, what was the point of all of that? It's almost as though it doesn't mean anything for anything. And so what verses 1 through 8 then is a series of questions that Paul anticipates his Jewish audience and especially his opponents would raise here. There are objections to his teaching. And Paul, knowing the mind of the Jew because he was one and was raised in it and trained in it all, and having encountered so many different Jews in his ministry then preaching the gospel, he knew the types of questions they asked. So as we go through that list of questions, some of them we might say, why would they ask this? What's the point of this? Trust me, Paul knew the point of that question. So even if us being 2,000 years detached from this and the vast majority in here being completely Gentiles in descendancy and not Jews, uh, we may sound strange to us, but it wasn't to them. These were the types of things Paul knew they were going to think. These were the types of objections he encountered. Now, in Acts chapter 17, this is interesting. I, I have a slide for this one, I think. It's the only one I have today. I may actually to turn, uh, believe it or not, to a couple passages. But Austin, do I have Acts 17? There we go. Listen to what Paul does when he would go into various cities. Keep in mind now, Paul was that special apostle sent out, that special missionary to the Gentiles and not to the Jews. That was his mission to the Gentiles. God set him apart for that. And yet, Paul couldn't help himself on his missionary journey to the Gentiles to swing into the synagogues to try to reach his own people. He explains in chapter 9 how much his heart is in pain at the very fact then as now the vast majority of Jewish people hear about Jesus as the Messiah and reject him and say no. And so this is what Paul would do. Listen, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
Paul would go into these places, into these synagogues of his own people. He's preaching, he's reasoning with them, most of them Jews, though there were some Greeks in there that had converted to uh, the Jewish religion, though they weren't descended physically from Abraham. But he would be reasoning with his people, trying to show them from the Old Testament, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for, believe in him. And inevitably... There were always Jews among them who, as Luke records here, were jealous and would oppose Paul. They were against him. They rejected the gospel. They were against his teaching. The same kinds of teaching he's teaching right here in the book of Romans would have been the same kinds of things he was trying to reason with with them in the synagogues. And they would hear things like he said in chapter 2 of Romans in verses 28 and 29 about the need of the circumcision of the heart and not being descended from Abraham. They'd hear these things and they'd become outraged and angry and object. Paul was very familiar with the types of things, the types of questions that would be raised in his teaching about the Jews especially And these kinds of things are very important for us to understand if we are going to become students of the Scriptures. Because in order to understand passages like this, you have to know a little bit about what's going on. And what's the deal with the Jews? And how is that all working out? And we need to understand the background and the context of these passages because even Peter said in that same passage I quoted earlier, roughly quoted, about Paul's letters being hard to understand. He said, some take those hard things to understand and twist them under their own destruction. They take them out of context. They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. So we have to make sure that we know as much as we can about the context of scripture so we rightly understand it and apply it. Paul knew that his gospel teaching was always under scrutiny. I think about that. I come here to preach every week and been doing that for 10 years here, a couple years back in our church back home, and yet I still get a little nervous when I'm preaching, and yet nobody's ever tried to drag me out and stone me afterwards. <laughs> they may have wanted to, but they can't do it. We have laws. I think sometimes of what it would have been like to be the Apostle Paul, and how he even says in Corinth, how when he preached, it was with fear and trembling. But as he did in Ephesus and as he said in Acts chapter 20, he did not shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God or anything that was profitable. Paul knew that the gospel was opposed and controversial. When the gospel was presented to the Jews, it was controversial because he's proclaiming to them just what he's been proclaiming, that their Jewishness cannot save them. And they cannot save themselves through the righteousness of the law, that they must look to this Jesus and him alone. See, the gospel is exclusive. It excludes any other way of salvation. And to the Jew, that made it incredibly controversial And to the Gentiles, it did the same thing. Do you know the Christians in the Roman Empire would have been okay in the main, even in those early centuries of persecution, had it not been, first of all, for the Jewish uh, persecution of them. 
and raising up that persecution, but also if they wouldn't have proclaimed Jesus as the only way of salvation. And they would have been okay of worshiping this Jesus as God if he was just a God. Because also, of course, Roman Empire said Caesar is God. Everybody must confess that. They got themselves in trouble, Christians did, when they proclaimed the exclusivity of the gospel. And so will we. When you say to somebody, the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, that sounds to them so arrogant, so pompous. And not only that, it really challenges them and their identity to the core of their being. You're saying, I'm not okay and yet I'm a pretty good person. Or I'm a pretty religious person, whatever religion I'm in. And you're claiming that I'm not okay? It's very offensive even now. When the church gets in trouble, when it tries to make the gospel more palatable to the culture, it always will. What Paul did is go into the culture and just proclaim the gospel. And whatever happened, happened. He trusted God for it. And for Paul, it meant tremendous suffering, imprisonment, and eventually even his own death as a martyr. But that's the way it goes. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. So we don't embrace the gospel lightly. We don't take upon ourselves the discipleship and following of Christ lightly. We know that as, as, as people now of Christ, we must teach and proclaim and live righteously and proclaim the gospel as the only way of salvation. And that is going to face lots of opposition. So be it. By the grace of God, we walk through that opposition. So the gospel is being confronted here. It's being challenged in these first eight verses. And Paul's bringing out these questions that are really challenging his teaching. Not only that, though, in chapter 3, the character of God is being challenged. The very character of God. So his faithfulness, verse 3, his faithfulness to his own words and promises in this context, specifically to the Jewish people. What about those promises? Is he going to remain faithful to those? So what's being challenged in his faithfulness? Or how about this? His righteousness in inflicting wrath on unrepentant sinners in verse 5. Is he unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? The thought of it, Paul, of God being unrighteous, he has to just say, I speak in a human way. By no means, see, the very character of God is being questioned. And we hear those same kinds of questions now when we preach the gospel and we teach the Bible. We get questions about God's faithfulness. We get questions about his right to judge. We get questions about his wrath. And it's confronted with all these kinds of questions. And Paul is defending the character, the righteousness, and the faithfulness of his God That will go on even down into chapter 3 when we get into the gospel and the cross itself, beginning in verse 21. And he talks about the cross and how God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, verse 25, by his blood. So when he's on the cross, he's bearing the wrath for the sins of all those who would believe in him. 
And then he says in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Paul's going to defend God's righteousness in passing over the sins of all of those people you read about in the Old Testament like David who committed such atrocities and yet God forgives him. He says you're Sins are pardoned and forgiven. Well, how can a righteous God do that? Answer, by putting forth his own son and taking all David's sins and Moses' sins and Joshua's sins and Isaiah's sins and your sins and my sins and punishing them in his son on the cross so that he can freely forgive, right? So this whole chapter is defending the righteous character of God. You know, what's interesting to me is that we've said these first three chapters are a courtroom scene, right? Where we're the defendants. We're in the hot seat, so to speak. The charges are being leveled against us. God is the judge. But what people do when they hear from Scripture about some of these very things they call God to the defendant's chair and they try to be judge of him. Do you ever hear people judging God for what he does or what he's done? Could you imagine doing that in a, just even a human courtroom now? If you're on trial for something and all of a sudden you tell the judge, now I'm going to put you on trial, judge. You'd be held in contempt of court. How many times can we challenge things like the righteousness of God and the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God, thereby putting him in the defendant's chair? This is exactly what the devil tempts everyone to do from the very beginning. He goes in chapter 3 of Genesis and he says to Eve, has God really said? Oh God, he challenges God's goodness and the fact that He had given them all the trees of the garden to eat except the one and he says he's just withholding something good for you essentially, isn't it? He challenged his truthfulness of his word because Eve said we will die if we eat of that tree and the devil said you will not die. From the very beginning the devil has been tempting humanity to challenge God and to confront God's goodness and faithfulness And we as his people are the people who are to uphold the righteous character of God at every turn. Well, let's look at verse 1. We're only going to get through the first two verses in the remaining few minutes that we have. That was the plan, by the way. (laughs) Verse 1, here's the first question following on the heels of verses 28 and 29, chapter 2. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? It sounds like, Paul, what you're saying is that there was no advantage to being a Jew. Not only that, but according to chapter 2, verse 12, it shows that the Jews will be judged by the written law that they had and the Gentiles will be judged lesser than that by only the 
natural law they had. And so essentially it sounds like we might be in a disadvantage to being Jews. What advantage do we have to being Jews? What was the whole Old Testament about? And what privilege is there then of being a descendant of Abraham? Now I will admit that's a valid question. If a Jew is not one who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward or physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, then that's a valid question that if even a Gentile can become, spiritually speaking, a Jew, and what was the point, what is the value of being descended from Abraham? And Paul answers that this way in verse 2. Much in every way. He doesn't want to miscommunicate anything to the Jews. This was a very privileged position that they held. This was a wonderful, privileged position, a graced position of being God's special people. They were thinking about this all wrongly, and he wants to correct that. He wants to head that off at the pass right away. And Paul's answer He says this in verse 2, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, before we get into the idea of the oracles of God, he makes that statement, to begin with, meaning there are many other advantages. Now, Let me show you something quickly in Romans 9 where he's going to jump back to this. So if you're really trying to study through and grasp the book of Romans, you'll want to get its structure down. Chapters 9 through 11, he'll readdress the Jews specifically and answer that question, why are so many of them rejecting God, rejecting Christ? What's God doing in all of this? And then he'll show the way how Jews are saved as well as Gentiles are saved. And how that all works together in verses chapters 9 through 11. But he get, begins in, verse, uh, in chapter 9 and he expresses his heart for them. And in verse 3 he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So see how much love he has for the Jewish people. Listen to this. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These are just a number of that list of Many advantages, much in every way, says Paul, have we been blessed as a people like no other people on the planet. But the one he mentions now back in Romans chapter two or three is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Word oracles, somewhat of a strange word for us. We don't use it that often. But I like it as the translation. The underlying word is simply words. Perhaps you've heard the Greek word logos, meaning word, message. Well, this is logia. It's the very words of God. It's like when I get done reading, scripture reading, I'll say these are the very words of God, meaning everything we just read 
The words themselves, the sentences, all of it, the phrases, all God's breathed out words. They're his oracles, which seems to give it that heightened kind of sense to it. The oracles of God. This is the way that God speaks to his people through his words breathed out through his prophets written down so that they could hear it read to them and eventually even us now having the completed word of God even in the New Testament having it written down so that we have these words of God. I don't have a verse for it but many of you are probably familiar uh, or a slide for it, but many of you are probably familiar with this, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also you created the world. So through the prophets, all those times, Genesis through Malachi, God is speaking out his words through the prophets by the Spirit and they're being taken down and written down and, and preserved throughout this time. That's the main advantage that they had that no one else in the world had. In all world history, and especially beginning, I mean, if, if you just looked at your Bible, Genesis 12, don't turn there, I'm not going to read it, but Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi, And then the 400 intervening silent years, so to speak, the only people on the planet to whom God spoke with words were the Jews. Now in Romans 1, we learned that the nations had God's revelation generally in creation. So they knew God was there. So Paul says, they're without excuse. But the only nation on the planet, the only people group to whom God used words to speak were the Jewish people. What a privilege. I'm going to have you do it. Turn quickly to Deuteronomy 4. And again, I apologize, I don't have the slides up. If you can find Deuteronomy 4 quickly, otherwise listen. The early church would have just listened as it was read, so... Deuteronomy 4, the re-giving of the law. Moses speaking to the people now. And he asks this question, verse 7. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules the oracles of God, so righteous is all this law that I set before you today. See how he's getting them to think this way? What a great privilege this is, Israel. No other nation has this privilege. Verse 32, scroll down to verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? 
Listen to this. To you it was shown, not to everyone else, but to you, Israel, that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven, here it is, he let you hear his voice. It is you, Israel, who were entrusted with the words of God. And what Moses is reminding them is what a great advantage that is. What advantage has the Jew, Paul? What advantage? Well, for one, first and foremost, you were entrusted with the very words of God. You were given the light of God's truth and laws. And even Paul says that those Old Testament scriptures were able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. No other nation had this. What a grace-privileged responsibility. I think it's important for us as Christians constantly remind ourselves of the great privilege it is of knowing God through his written word. What a privilege that is. Of, like Israel, being his graciously chosen and called out people and being given, as the church, being given, entrusted with his very words. What a privilege that is. What a grace that is to have. And I think it's important to remember that there have been billions of human beings on planet earth in history and now who do not have the words of God in their language. They've never heard the good news of Jesus. You know what that should do for us? It should humble us And this is why Paul will get to it in Romans 10. This word now, the message to the church is go and preach the gospel. Bring now the words of God to the nations around the world and proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. Do you ever take the time to thank God for the grace of his words? Friends, If you have a Bible in your possession, you're entrusted with the words of God. What do you do with this during the week? What do you do with with what you've been entrusted during the week? This is the way God speaks to his people through his word. You know, both in Israel and now, God doesn't just nilly-willy have conversations with people and tell people things. He speaks to his people through his words as he always has. No Israelite would have ever run around and said, guess what, guess what God said to me this morning? Would have never said that except the identified prophets. This is a privilege that we're entrusted with to have the very words of our God given to us. What do we do with those? And you'll notice that word entrusted, friends, In verse 2, very important. Very important for the first two verses, but also important to understand in verse 3. The core, the root word in entrusted is the idea of faith or trust. And what we'll see next week is that many of them were faithless. 
to that entrusting of God with these words. They were faithless to him, but that's not going to nullify the faithfulness of God. We'll go there next week. But they were entrusted. It's a sacred trust. And we, won't have, we don't have the time to look at it, but you should look at it later. In Deuteronomy, especially chapters four through six, what you'll see is Moses reminding them, this is a great privilege. This, the law, the words of God, great privilege. And we're entrusted with it. And he'll say things like this, that they need to preserve them and protect them and proclaim them and put them into practice and then pass them on to their children. That's how it works. It's a sacred trust that is to be preserved, protected, proclaimed, practiced, and passed on to the next generation over and over and over again. This is what some of them, Paul will say in verse 3, were unfaithful to this sacred trust. How are we doing as individual Christians, but more generally as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the Word of God? I tell people when they're looking for a church, I'm like, the main thing that you need to look for first, the number one thing that you need to analyze about a church, what do they do with the words of God in their worship? How do they treat the words of God when they worship? I mean, they're entrusted with it. I'm not going to have to stand up for another preaching pastor somewhere in the judgment and give an account for the way he handled the Word of God just for me. But when you're analyzing a church, if the first thing you're looking for is the style of music, whether it's traditional or contemporary or mixed or I like it or it's upbeat or it's whatever, if that's the first thing you're looking for, Your priorities are wrong. Paul said the number one advantage of the people of God is that they're entrusted with the words of God, you see. What do they do with those words? You know, there was, we see this all over in the scriptures, uh, both in the Old and New Testament, this, this order within the Jews called the scribes. And they get a bad rap because many of them were uh, teamed up with Pharisees or Pharisees themselves around the time of Jesus, so they'd always show up together opposing Jesus. But really, it was the scribes' responsibility to copy out the Word of God and keep it going and, and preserve it in that way, and God used them, probably many of them ungodly scribes, those centuries God in His sovereignty promised to preserve His Word, and He did through these scribes. But there was one exemplary scribe there's a book of the Bible named after him. His name was Ezra. And when I was in seminary, Ezra chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10 stood out to me because one of my professors of the history of preaching and philosophy made us memorize this verse to be this kind of preacher, and not just me, but I want us all to be an Ezra-like Christian, and I want our church to be Ezra-like And it says, uh, end of verse 8, Ezra 7, he, or verse 6 rather, he, that is Ezra, was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Verse 9, for the good hand of his God was on him. 
Why was the good hand of God on Ezra? Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart, listen to this, to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. See those three things? That's the heart that God blesses. That's the church upon whom they can know that God's good hand is upon them. Why? Because we've set our hearts now together to know the law of the Lord, but that's not enough. That was enough for the Romans 2 guy, but it's not enough for us. But to also do it then, because it's not just the hearers of the word that are justified before God, but the doers of the word. To know the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it, to pass it on to others. May God help us as a people to understand the great advantage we have of being his people, graced with his very words, and may he incorporate into our hearts Ezra-like determination with his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray to that end. Make us all like that. Give us first and foremost a longing and a desire and a love and a delight in your words. May they be sweet to us. If you don't do that work, God, we will put our Bibles away and never use them. We pursue what we delight in. We spend time in what we enjoy. Please help us to enjoy you through your word and help us to be faithful to it. To know it, to do it, and to teach it to others. We commit that to you and ask for you to answer it. In the name of Jesus, amen.